When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Performance Anxiety. This episode welcomes Ken Stringfellow of the Posies to the show. We start with an in-depth chat about the history of the Posies. Then there's Ken's adoption the unreleased movie, Ken, his tour to support his solo album that was released on September 11th, 2001, and then there's new Posey's music. There's so much in this show that I can't even touch on it all in this intro. Follow Ken and the Posey's on social media. They're easy to find. Follow us at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, review, and share, and let's jump right into Ken Stringfellow. Hello, this is Ken Stringfellow from The Posies uh, and many other things. You're listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. We've got quite a few things to talk about here uh, on the eve of, uh, for example, my solo tour, which will bring me to the Bright Fox Theater in Winchester, for example, on March 7th, as well as many other places. Uh, and so we're going to be delving into, uh, gosh, a little bit of everything from the beginning of my career up until its future. Did you come from France to start doing these tours or, uh, have you been on the West coast for a little while now? Uh, I, we got in yesterday. Um, I'm here, I'm actually going, it's a little complicated, my life and lifestyle, but I'm here with my daughter, uh, this week. Um, you know, she's visiting her boyfriend who lives out here in the desert. I was, today I spent, we spent time with my biological father who lives out here in the desert. And then during the week, uh, we're going to be working on the Posies album because our drummer lives here in LA. So, oh, well, okay. so it's that. And then I go back, drop my daughter off and then I come back again to start the tour. Oh, wow. Man, yeah. you're not kidding. That is complicated. Holidays <laughs> work. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much for joining me and uh, and spending a little time with me and talk a little bit about your career. I, I really, really do appreciate it. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. You're about to start, uh, I guess it's a solo tour, right? It's just, it's just, it's just you or is there going to be a band backing you up on this? 
No, it's solo. And I've been basically doing this tour or, you know, doing this particular show for a few months now. So basically, um, I'm touring, playing uh, this album of mine called Touched, which came out in 2001. Right. Uh, not only did it come out in 2001, it came out on September 11th, 2001, and therefore has a very particular history with that historical moment right. uh, of what people were going through. And uh, the album, you know, um, kind of has, I don't know, it kind of was the right medicine for that time. It's its one of those things that we can say there are no coincidences and the album seemed to fit with people's mood. It's, it, it has its requisite share of kind of grief and loss and that kind of thing kind of interwoven into it. But it also comes out of there. It's, you know, it goes into those depths and then comes out in a more, with a more positive uh, resolution. that reason i think it was very uh comforting for people in those times that were full of anxiety and and emotions that we didn't know what to do with um and when i when i released that album i uh, and you know of course the, the day of the release it was 9 11 and yeah. i you know i decided in the following days that i would try and do as much of the tour as possible um so uh there's a couple shows during that week that didn't happen for obvious reasons right. but by actually by the friday after september 11 which was a tuesday um i got on a plane and uh flew out to the east coast and, and started the tour basically where i could um so by virtue of that i played in new york city on september 20th and it was a very intense show very memorable and so why this is all happening this year or starting last year is the venue i played on that tour, the Mercury Lounge um, was having their 25th anniversary last year, and okay. they were doing like a like a best of, like their their favorite shows of the last 25 years, and they really wanted me to come back and revisit wow. Touched, a la that show that I did there in 2001. Oh wow! So uh, I, I did. So that was the the, the anchor date, as we say. Um, and once I announced that show, uh, there's a lot of people interested in seeing that album performed and just people, you know, have a real special, it's, it's the album that people ask me about the most of my solo work. For oh, sure. I imagine, um, yeah. And I think it's not only, I think it's, you know, it's a good album and I think it's got certain qualities that, that, that are kind of unique, which we can talk about later. But right. of course, because it was the album that came out around that time and it was such an emotional time for people, it's kind of been, they kind of bonded with it in a, in a very special way. Um, and that's why people keep coming back to that album, I think in a lot of ways. So I played the, you know, so once I had the New York show, other people wanted to see the show. So then that, it just kept expanding. And now, um, you know, here I am coming back for another round in the U S. Um, and I've, you know, I've recently done, I was in Spain, I was in the UK, Ireland, Belgium, um, doing the show. And I think it'll keep going. Um, I, I think that I'll be doing a few more of these touch shows in Europe, okay. uh, and, and blah, blah, but <laughs> certainly like, um, this round of us touring that'll, that's coming up, 
uh, I would imagine will will be, you know, I've kind of gone everywhere you can go uh, in the U.S. on this tour. <laughs> One of the things that I, I thought was amazing going back to the release date was that you took the album on tour when a lot of people were canceling their tours mm-hmm. just because of the uncertainty of the times. And I think that might be another reason why it, it's connected with so many people is, you know, you were willing to go out and say, no, I'm going to uh, people, you guys, everybody needs this. I mean, they were canceling yeah, baseball games and, and yeah, yeah, all the sports were canceled. TV was all news all the time. And, you know, it, it was a good uh, distraction and a good catharsis for people at the same time. I think personally that, that for me, you know, music has been there for me. Um, the music that I love listening to has been there for me at the worst times in my life. Yep. Uh, and it is, you know, kind of, um, companion in a sense, an invisible companion, uh, an imaginary friend. No, it's real, but it's just, it's invisible, but it sounds, it sounds like music. Um, and so, you know, I can understand why people cancel their tours, um, especially more complicated tours that involve lots of yeah. travel and logistics that, that, you know, were being disrupted at that time. But there's also probably some feeling maybe amongst some people that they didn't want to be seen as, uh, doing something, I don't know, self-serving or, uh, frivolous or, mm-hmm. um, or un, uh, that didn't acknowledge that, the, you know, it was like a matter of respect, I suppose, for some people that they thought, well, okay, this is like a kind of funeral moment. I'm not going to be uh, doing my celebratory kind of thing, you know, and I felt like this music is not inappropriate. I felt like, you know, we're, I'm not, I'm not uh, ignoring people's grief um, and I'm not trying to profiteer off their grief. Okay. Uh, yeah. I just am coming here to show up because I said I would and because I believe that music has a role in, in these kind of moments. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, maybe not every music, but, uh, you know, it, but, but some, but there's a lot of different kinds of music, just like there's a lot of different kinds of ways of human behavior, not that right. certain things work at certain times. And yeah. I felt like this was okay. Um, and I wasn't afraid. And I also didn't have like a crew or a band that I was dragging with me and making them go through the bumpy ride of, of travel, which really wasn't that bumpy. I mean, actually once, once flights resumed on Friday, you know, life was starting already to head back a little bit to normal. And I, I think for the New Yorkers who came out to that show on the 20th of September, 2001, um, I think for them, it was a big deal that life was starting to have some things get back to normal. Of course, New York was still disrupted. And, the, and I'll, I'll tell you that when I landed on Friday at, at uh, Newark airport, that the site was still smoldering. You could wow. see this column of smoke coming up from where the twin towers had been. I mean, it was still a very fresh wound yeah. uh, psychologically and physically on the city. Uh, but, you know, damn it, you know, we're going to try and just, not be completely cowed by this, you know? Yes. Um, and I, and I felt like also like having my world in my, and music and all those things that I love, I I felt like that's a victory. I'm not going to hand to those people who, who did those terrible acts. Um, I'm not going to let them destroy everything that I love. 
Um, and I'm, you know, going to stand up to that kind of, you know, it's called terrorism for a reason, because aside from the immediate effects of, of people being killed, which is bad enough, it, it sends this message and it puts out this wave of fear um, that, that prevents people from living their normal lives, even after the the actual effects of the, the immediate effects of the attacks. And you don't want to subscribe to that. So going back a little further, let, let's let's go back to early on. When did you start playing music and, and did you start on, I think I read you started on piano. Was that mm-hmm. right? How old yeah. were you when you started? Uh, I'm eight or nine. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I had this real fascination with music and my parents' record collection and that just kind of obsessed me. I mean, I was completely, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I have some kind of borderline Aspergery kind of things. And so when I get into something, I really get into it. Um, I know feeling. <laughs> and so I was completely obsessed with my parents' record collection and had kind of memorized it. Um, uh, then I could blind test like almost any record that they had and, and could, you know, tell you which composer, which blah, blah, blah. Cause they had a lot of classical music. Okay. Um, but of course they had other things too. Um, but anyway, so they saw that I had a keen interest in music and, uh, they knew, uh, also they, we, you know, I'm adopted and I'd been, we'd been given just enough information not quite correctly, but, but close enough that there was music in my, in my parents' background. Okay. And in, in your, uh, your biological parents' background. Right. Okay. So they, they, they knew that there was something there. And then, then when they saw I had such keen interest in music, they felt they should probably encourage that. And, um, Wonderful. that there was, you know, a reason that that was happening. And so they got a, a piano and I got piano lessons. Um, but that wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, it's quite funny because I mean, I was glad to have a piano, very glad. Um, but classical music, piano lessons, you know, which is a good first guess for my parents. It's a good fundamental way to approach music. Um, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. You know, I would, I would sort of shirk off the, the homework as it were, um, to, to just play you know, and improvise. Um, but I did get some feel for the piano, uh, from these lessons, you know, I'm not like an incredible piano player, but, um, you know, I got a fairly natural familiarity with the instrument that gives me some fluidity, you know, when, when needed. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, I don't know any, I don't know too many eight year olds that are into playing classical music. Right. I mean, I like listening to it. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, you know, I mean, I, I loved the, uh, you know, hosts planets and all these kind of things, you know, that are so great, um, as a kid. Um, but, I, but, but, the, but you don't play that when you're a beginning piano student. This right. stuff is really rudimentary and not very, uh, not very enticing, shall we say. So when did you switch to guitar? Uh, well, uh, so you know, when, when I started piano, we were living in suburban Chicago, uh, and, and my mom and dad, that is to say, well, you know, mom and dad, right? Yeah. We, the adoptive, the, the biological parents will put them aside because I don't encounter them till later. Okay. Uh, but, um, mom and dad, uh, split up in 1978 and my mom and I moved to Bellingham, Washington, 
And um, we, my mom and I moved to Bellingham. She remarried, uh, and my stepdad, um, he came with a, a house uh, and that was out of town a little bit. Um, and it was we used it as a summer place, and then you know he basically moved in with us for. Okay you know, basically, but we still had his house, which is out in the sticks a little bit and out in this house where we'd, we'll go out and enjoy the lake during the summer. Uh, there was a guitar. Um, he had, um, after his first marriage and before his marriage to my mom, he had a girlfriend for a while and that girlfriend's son played guitar and had left this guitar behind. Oh, like okay. evidently he wasn't really into it, but uh, this guitar yeah. was there and it was forgotten oh, wow. essentially. And, um, I thought that that, you know, that was great. So I, I learned to, to play it basically. And it was in, you know, a 1960s acoustic guitar, like really, really difficult to play. Um, yeah. which was excellent, um, because it, it forced me to, try really hard you know it's really high action and really big strings and yep. uh, it's like an archtop acoustic um orpheus brand wow. something like a harmony basically okay something, if you're familiar with that like really yeah. similar um so uh yeah I, I struggled on this guitar and that got me you know some serious strength yeah um in, in, a, in a couple of years and then so you know that's probably like sixth grade um, and in seventh grade, um, I, uh, there's a, a teacher at our middle school who after school also, he basically had like an extracurricular guitar class and he taught lessons. I didn't learn from him, but at one point he had mentioned he was selling an electric guitar and an amp. Um, and so I bought that, uh, from him, like, um, like, um, the guitar is a is an Italian Vox from from the early seventies, basically. Okay. Um, so uh, it's called a Super Meteor. It's a one pickup, vaguely Stratocaster shaped <laughs> vaguely. Uh, guitar. Yeah, it's not it's not quite as thin as a Stratocaster, and the and the the horns are a little sharper and blah blah blah. But it's not so. It's it, the closest equivalent in in more common guitars as a strat. Okay. And then the amp was a little PV, uh, backstage 30 amp. So that was my first electric thing. And of course, by that point, after, you know, I've been playing for a year or two on an acoustic guitar that was quite difficult. Playing electric was, you know, like, a, like a breeze. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so when did you start playing with other people? Well, at the same time. Oh, really? So, okay. uh, yeah. So when I was in sixth grade, um, a class, I had a classmate and we became friends and he was a, already a pretty good guitar player. Wow. Um, and so he and I hit it off and we both liked the same stuff, you know? And, uh, so we, we started, we actually put a band together Oh, cool! and, and played all through middle school. First I was playing keyboards. Um, and we, and the school had like this, um, like a kind of transistor, uh, organ, um, how would I describe it? Um, it wasn't like a Farfisa or a Continental or something like that. It was like an, like an iteration from there, like with different okay. presets, but it was basically a transistor based simple. Um, I mean, like you can imagine like a slight update from a Farfisa with some of those same sounds, but a few different, uh, 
you know, like a, like read or trumpet or oh, whatever, okay. or, you know, but, it, yeah, but yeah. it wasn't digital, you know, it was, it was from the seventies. Right. Yeah. So we had that and you could do a pretty fairly, um, respectable, um, uh, Lucy in the sky with diamonds, for example, oh, that, wow. dun, 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 dun. you could do that sound and you could do other stuff. But then I moved to guitar. Um, we all decided it was more rock and roll and it was more portable because the keyboard wasn't ours, but we could, right. with the guitar, we could do whatever. Um, and so, you know, we had like a two, two guitars, bass and drums band oh, with wow. kids from middle school. And we played school events, basically, you know, I don't think we ever played off campus, but we played right. some stuff at the school. <laughs> okay. When did you, uh, end up meeting up with John Auer? Shortly thereafter. So, uh, after three, after the middle school was done, three years of middle school, uh, we moved on to high school and I was still buddies with Chip who I'd formed this first band with Chip Westerfield. Okay. Um, and we still, you know, basically had this band going. We, you know, we, high school obviously is a little busier in terms of academics and whatnot. You know, we ostensibly would still get together and play at the drummer's garage. Um, and so that year, my freshman year, um, is when John moved to Bellingham. He had lived there before, um, but he moved away for a while um, and he moved back. And so he's a year younger than I am. So I was okay. 14 at this time and he was 13. Um, so, and he, you know, had earned a very quickly a reputation as a kind of guitar prodigy. Oh, okay. Wow. Who could, who could play, you know, any solo by Van Halen or Whoa. anything like that. Yeah. I mean, he was like, had just insane chops. Wow. Um, and so we, uh, we, we had heard about him and then one day we heard somebody playing at the music store downtown, you know, which was one of the places we would hang out in after school. And it had, we're like, it has to be that kid that we've been hearing about. So <laughs> we went and, approached him and you know my friend chip was really the leader of the band so he he went and talked to him and i was you know moved over to just singing and john became our new guitar player we still didn't play any gigs we, we just basically jammed in the garage of uh of our drummer but at least that got john and i connected and then the next year when i was a sophomore he was a freshman and he came to our school right. uh and then we could really start hanging out and you know, there was always a band around that had us in it. Um, also with our friend Chip uh, at times. And then I had other bands and sometimes John would guess with that. And, you know, that that kind of thing. So we're, you know, just got really involved. And, and John around this time had made a studio in his house with his dad. Oh, wow. His dad was a college professor. So his dad had a good gig. Yeah. Uh, and thus had some extra money and, uh, but was a very dedicated amateur musician and, you know, really good guitar player and, and et cetera, great folk musician. And so as a project, um, they piece by piece put together a little analog recording studio in their basement. Oh, wow. And so this was John and my playground. Basically every day after school, we would go and futz around in the studio. That's amazing. So, the, the posies started off as just the two of you, right? 
Yeah, well, even this is still, we were in high school, so this is way, the posies are even three years away. Okay. Yeah, we just did other other things. Sometimes, uh, well, there's any number of things you can do, like um, school projects that you can make an audio, you know, presentation for, or, you know, ex- musical experiments of any kind, so um, etc. You guys were down in the basement just basically exploring audio and experimenting then. Yeah. Whatever you could do. And, and sure. Stretch. Into, and, and, you know, different. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, John was at that time um, a really good uh, drum programmer. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, he just had learned um, this Yamaha RX-11 drum machine, like really inside and out and, and could do some really great stuff with it. And, you know, we, we kind of, we did some stuff with, that was like totally like synth based. Um, we, we did a little bit of everything. This really, some really unusual music, actually pretty cool. Oh man. Um, and I was also recording at home, uh, you know, bouncing stuff between two cassette players, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is really cool and doing stuff like that. And I had a whole band that John wasn't really involved in, um, that, that did, that kind of music, like we did really unusual experimental kind of sounding things all improvised. Oh, wow. Um, then that we would bounce over, um, to, you know, a couple generations to do some different layers. That's man. You know, that's a whole art form that nobody knows about, you know, after a certain age, kids don't know about that today. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. It has a certain flavor. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it does. And- um, that, that would be hard to recreate nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, you you can down you know you do what what I I end up doing half the time on the podcast. You just download some software and you can just plug into it, and it's just it's so much easier. It, it I think it takes some of the the charm out out of a home recording at this point because you're not doing the the, the editing work that that you know it's not as physical or as as manually intent manual labor intensive as bouncing things off and lining them up you know, on the cassettes and, and it's, it's right. There's risks art. involved in the analog world because you can't undo it. Exactly. And every time you make a copy, it degenerates by a generation. Right. And that gives it a certain flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Which you don't get in, in, in the digital mm. world. So I always love going back and listening to the older, old demos and things like that. Do you still have any of those demos or are they floating? Yeah, sure. Them? Yeah, yeah, wow. sure. I mean, certainly a lot of the stuff that I did with my band, uh, the, 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 the non-John band, right. um, the g- genetic defects. Um, I have those tapes and a stuff that John and I did. We have, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that survived. Yeah. That's amazing. So when did you guys decide to start the posies? And, and, and I guess before you get into that, or maybe while you get into that, how did you decide on the name, the posies? Uh, okay. So th- that's further down the line. So basically, uh, I graduated high school in 1986 and I then moved on to attend the university of Washington in Seattle, okay. which is an hour and a half from Bellingham where okay. we come from. And so yeah, getting to university, John and I didn't really, you know, he was still in high school, you know, he's <laughs> one year, one year behind me. So, uh, you know, we didn't really check in for the, you know, I was just getting used to college life and a whole new deal, you know? Yeah. And, uh, in, 
in when after the new year, basically. Um, so we're talking the beginning of 1987. I checked in, we checked in with each other and, uh, found out that, you know, I'd been demoing a few songs. I'd had somebody, uh, in the dorms who had a four track so I could borrow the four track and, and demo stuff. And there's a drum machine and all this stuff. And I could kind of, um, make some, you know, I had some ideas for tunes and I could kind of get them on tape and, right. and basically John and I compared notes and, and sort of, we'd kind of gone somewhere else songwriting wise than we had been before. It had a, it had a particular flavor and it seemed just a little more organic, especially after coming through like synths and stuff like that, that we'd been, you know, doing stuff like that with drum machines and whatnot. Right. We kind of hit upon something a little more, I don't know, a little more timeless, I suppose. Um, still kind of quirky. I mean, if you listen to our first record, it's, there's some, it's not all strummy stuff. It's kind of strange in a way. <laughs> I mean, there's some very 60s stuff yeah, on that first record, that. but there's also, I mean, like the song like Blind Eyes Open. It's kind of, I don't even know, it's kind of like hyper, it's a little bit like XTC, I guess, in that sense, and that they have this great pop sensibility, but they would also do stuff that's maybe more rhythmic and kind of hyperactive. Yeah. Hyperactive sure. is a word that comes to mind with XTC's music, especially their early music, and we were big fans, so it's not a, it's not a surprise that there's a lot of XTC in that first record. But yeah, so we, we when we had this first batch of tunes... Uh, we kind of realized we were onto something and really on a similar wavelength. And, uh, we decided we'd do a band, um, but with who it was hard to say. Um, okay. so at some point we made some acoustic demos at John's studio of a couple tunes and started to circulate those around. And I recently, I'd kind of forgotten all about this actually. Um, but I was on the tour, the solo tour last year and I was playing in Kentucky and the guy who was one of the writers for the Seattle music paper, the, the free music paper that came out every month called the rocket. Um, his wife is from Kentucky and they moved to this little town and he opened a bookstore, blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh. Um, so he came to the gig and he said, Hey, I've got something for you that I think you'll find this amusing. And he gave me a copy of our very first demo. Wow. Had the name, the poppies. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh my gosh. And I, you know, I, I just, I think, you know, for various reasons that sounded good to us at that time. Uh, and then we discovered there was a band already called that. And I think it was pretty close to when we were really starting to decide what to do, like how to make a record, stuff like that. And, um, so we, we went for the posies, which is kind of like the next thing over. I mean, our heads were really in the sixties in many ways. Um, and that name makes sense in that sense, in that context. Okay. So like the Um, whole flower power. Yeah. Something like this, you know, um, I think we wanted something that stood out from also like the prevailing winds of like, 
uh, you know, like punk and, and uh, which, you know, we were listened to punk rock and we were fans of the bands, but you know, it had a certain, I don't know, aggression to it. And we were kind of against that in right. a sense. Like, I mean, for us, I mean, you know, uh, we were, yeah. we didn't, that wasn't where our heads were at. We, we were really kind of, you know, Pacific people. Um, and that's just kind of where we were at. Um, it's funny because as our live show changed over the years, we became like a really aggressive band, but yeah. we, we come from this place of a really, of a real gentle start. I mean, like it, like the, the, there's nothing, threatening about the Posey's first album. Right. <laughs> well, and, 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 and I think that had a real interesting effect actually. Um, in that, you know, I mean, I've been to lots of punk shows and, and, you know, it's like, it's like a dude thing at a certain oh, yeah. point, you know, because of the slam dancing and stuff. Yeah. I mean, women could get involved, but it's, you know, like, it just, it, that's not how it worked out. It was shirtless dudes like yes. beating on each other, basically. I mean, that, that's really fun. Yeah. But in that sense, if you're like, you know, an alternative listening woman and you don't want to be around that energy, like you didn't have a lot of options at that time, you know, because all ages shows, the most common ones at that time were generally punk rock shows and they were kind of violent. I yes. mean, that's just the way it is. And so along comes this band um, whose main advertisement, you know, our name is basically saying we are not that, you know, we are yeah. like a safe space. So we absorbed in the early first couple of years of the posies, like basically all the people who didn't want to be at those shows, you know, they were looking for an alternative to the aggression of those shows. That's basically. really great thinking. Actually, that that's a really different mindset at the time. Well, we didn't conceive of that. It's just what happened. Just, wow. It wasn't like we were saying, Oh, this is going to work because right, no, it's right. just that, that we were that way. And, and suddenly we attracted a really big audience because people wanted something not aggressive. Not, yeah, I yeah. think. And, and it's basically like a safe space. Okay. You know, so, um, you know, people who, uh, you know, to every stripe of person who might not feel comfortable uh, in a hyper-masculine, somewhat violent environment came t to us because they had nowhere else to go. But they also, you know, and we, they, you know, we were likable, too. So people, um, you know, really bonded with us. Well, and the songs are good, so that helps. Some, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, f the first album was... Uh based off the demos that you'd sent uh, and then you, you had to actually go on tour and you had to put together a touring band. Now the first album, when you were recording it, mm -hmm. how you, you put together a band after the album came out, right? Is that, am I, that right. Mean? So basically our quest for finding people to play with us was unsuccessful. <laughs> um, nobody could quite get their heads around what we're trying to do because it was different, you know, if we'd said, you know, oh, we want to do like a goth thing or we want to do a punk thing or whatever, I, you know, pe people would have gotten into it. I mean, the, the, the prevailing winds of music at that time would be something along the lines of like Big Black or something like that. Something that was really 
heavy and, and aggressive and, and kind of like, you know, angry in a sense. And that made sense to people, but what we were doing did not, you know, like there just was no, I mean, maybe like a band, like, I think we were, we were, what we were doing had more in common with like the Smiths or something like that. Okay. Um, but as, and the Smiths are one of my favorite bands, but even what they do had a specific flavor that's kind of related to, because it's maudlin and melancholy, it's kind of fit in with like a little bit of the goth mentality of like, okay. you know, it's, it's like illegal to be happy kind right. of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's not where we were at either. So we were really like very much alone in our thing. Um, so it, for other musicians, they were like, they didn't see it. They didn't share our vision. So they weren't interested. Um, wow. It, okay. it didn't. Yeah. That's really odd. I mean, considering also like just clearly how good a musician John is, I would have thought that that, would have attracted people, but did this, yeah, just, we didn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. You um, were which, is, which is a, which is a good sign when you think about it now. Right. Um, it's, it's a good sign to be so different that, that you're, that you're out of step, you know, with everything going on around you that, that, that's, that could work in your favor, um, for, for, in terms of, you know, making your own mark. But at yeah. the time we were just kind of like puzzled that nobody wanted to do anything with us. Yeah. I was gonna say it could make it, I imagine it would make it difficult at the time for you guys to, to figure out what, why, why can't we play with anybody? Why, why are we having this trouble? Right. So what we decided to do was record all the songs we have. So, so that everybody could hear each song complete and that this would be like a demo to get other musicians. And then we'd go do things. This is how we viewed it. Okay. Um, so we, and we had the studio, so no problem, you know, so, um, over basically we did a little bit in the summer of 1987, basically did one song and then kind of demoed some others acoustically. Okay. And without all of that feeling good, we came back over the Christmas break, 87 to 88. Um, and now we're talking about my second year of call at the university of Washington. Right. And now John is attending, uh, Western Washington university in Bellingham. Okay. Um, the same school where his dad was a professor. Uh, and so, you know, I would just commute up to Bellingham and we'd work in the studio and, and we, we made, uh, 12 songs and, uh, by, so it was like around, uh, by the, you know, we had the Christmas break to do a lot of work. And then in January and February, as you know, there's a lot of holidays, you know, yeah, yeah. MLK, President's Day, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So I had some three day weekends to come up and, 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 you know, take the Greyhound up to Bellingham and we'd work in John's studio. Um, and then, and, you know, mixing, John did the mixing in one night because the, we had an, we had eight tracks. So we, what we'd worked on was eight tracks of instruments. And then we bounced that down to two on a, on a, on a DBX encoded cassette. Okay. okay. Um, and then bounced that back onto eight tracks, you know, a stereo instrumental thing. And we did six tracks of vocals and maybe a little percussion wow. on, on the tape. So the mixing was just mixing the vocals to the already mixed track. Okay. Essentially. Um, so that was something John could do in an evening. Um, and so that was in March uh, and then it gets really interesting. So basically, you know, John 
did the mixing thing and he played it for uh, some friends of his in Bellingham uh, and who, you know, everybody in the room was like, Hey, uh, this is kind of a little bit better than a demo. I think it, you know, it's 12 songs. I mean, sounds like a record to us. Yeah. yeah exactly. And he's like, Oh, maybe. Yeah. And yeah. Sure. So he consulted me about that and we thought, well, why don't we just release it and see what happens? And, why not? um, at this time, you know, we didn't have the money or really the, even the knowledge as to how to do a LP and, and CDs were not really very common. Right, right. So, um, we decided to make a cassette that was easy. Yeah. Um, so that we could basically do ourselves. I, we, I, um, in fact, we did make them ourselves. Our mix, our mix down was to a cassette. Okay. Um, because John's quarter inch machine had broken. Oh, so no. never, never to return. So oh, we no. mixed, so we, we, we had an eight inch, uh, excuse me, uh, eight track, half inch multi-track and the mixing was done to uh, the same dbx encoded cassette player very high quality cassette player yeah yeah but the, the master is a cassette wow um and in fact there was no mastering in fact we just basically <laughs> started dubbing this cassette to oh other my. cassettes wow um and that was the thing so we we bought a box of of uh generic blank um blank cassettes there's a record store that sold you know bulk blank cassettes in a you know clear plastic shell right, right. um so we we dubbed those uh, you know we had uh, john had another um cassette deck a double cassette deck so we could make two at once oh wow uh so on and so forth so we made 50 of these um and we printed uh, a, a friend of john's printed the covers which and the stickers we got the templates and the whatever we made the stuff and we made the art or whatever. And, and you know, it's only a one color print job. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just blue, blue type, blue borders, blue halftone photo. Yep. Um, and so that was really easy. We did that at the university print shop for nothing. And we had to wow. cut the cassette covers ourselves. They were like printed at two to a sheet. Oh, wow. And then we had, you know, you buy the, the, the stickers that go on the cassette, you buy those on a thing. We could, okay. we, there's like 10 on a sheet or whatever. We printed those. We printed a whole bunch. So we had the, a reserve of those, but we did a run of 50 cassettes. Wow. Um, and we gave those, we, we consigned them to a record store where he, where John already was working at a record store in, in Bellingham, consigned them to a record store in Seattle um, where Scott McCoy, uh, musician in Seattle from the band, the young fresh fellows, blah, right. blah, blah, who we really, who we really idolized worked. And we gave one to Scott, um, for a number of reasons, because we wanted to be on the label that released, uh, the young fresh fellows, pop Lemon records. Right. Right. Yeah. And we also knew that Scott was a journalist uh, for the aforementioned free music monthly, the, the rocket. So, and Scott was just kind of a hero of ours, you know, he's right, yeah. a great musician and, and we loved his band and blah, blah, blah. So we gave him a copy and we dropped a copy off. We actually, we made, this is even crazier. <laughs> we made a reel, uh, a quarter inch reel to reel somehow. I, I um, <laughs> because we, uh, we, we didn't do it at our place. I don't know. John went somewhere and made this, but, 
we made a quarter inch demo reel to reel and we dropped that off at a commercial radio station in Seattle. Uh, you know, as we just did and we all, we gave a copy to the college station in Seattle as well. Oh my gosh. So that was that out of those 50 and thinking we're talking now we're talking April, like around the beginning of April okay. of 1988 and several things happened that month. Or, or end of March. Yeah, end of March we're talking. Okay. So April comes around, the rocket comes out, and Scott has reviewed our cassette with a very glowing review. Uh, so there's that. Right. And then, and we're like, whoa. And then this, you know, like anybody who drops off something at a radio station, unsolicited, no track, you know, we had, we'd never played, we played like one acoustic, two acoustic gigs in Bellingham. Like we're nobodies. Right, right. It's pretty much guaranteed that that cassette is going in the bin. Right, and yeah. never going to be heard of again. Um, well, it didn't work out that way for us. Um, one day I was getting ready for school. Um, by now I was living in an apartment um, near the university. I'd moved out of the dorms. And I turned on the radio to the station that I listened to every morning this commercial alternative station and lo and behold, right as I turn on the radio within five minutes, our song is playing. Oh, wow. And I was like, Whoa, that's crazy. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's, we're talking like 9am on a weekday, like prime radio time. Yeah. Yeah. People, drive people time. pay for this stuff, Absolutely. you know? Um, and so I'm like, Whoa, that's crazy. So, uh, then I came back, you know, midday or whatever, turning on the radio and there was the fucking song again. Like it wow. basically went straight into their top rotation. Oh um, my gosh. And that was really weird. And then they put another song into their top rotation. So two songs on a commercial radio station, you know, that will change your life yeah. for sure. So things started moving very fast. And then, and, and Scott McCoy, uh, basically the next time I went into the, to the record store and the cassettes just started disappearing immediately. <laughs> so we, you know, we have to make them and, you know, we had several cassette decks going now to make oh my these gosh. things. And John was taking promo cassettes from uh, work and we were dubbing over them whether they were the right length or not. <laughs> um, this kind of thing. And then it started to snowball. So I, next time I saw Scott, he said, hey, do you guys, you know, things are going really well. You guys want to play a show? And uh, my wife's band is playing uh, a gig. And uh, do you guys want to play last? And we were like, yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now I'm like, shit. Now we need a band. Yeah. Like, I've taken this gig and no, so I have to find people. And this is so I had been talking to a guy in one of my classes at the UW and I, uh, he'd mentioned that he had a roommate that was a drummer and he was a guitar player. And I said, look, buddy, uh, we got probably the best problem you could have. We've got gigs and all this stuff happening and we have no band and I know you're a guitar player, but I don't think I could pull off playing bass and singing. Would you be willing to play with us for a little bit and move over to bass? And do you think your roommate would be interested in playing drums? And he was like, yeah, sure. Sounds cool. Let's check it out when we get together, you know, in a couple of days. Okay, cool. turns out they live one block away from me. Oh. <laughs> uh, so you know, went up to their house with John and the, you know, from note one, we, it just felt like a band. Oh, um, wow. 
And so there we, there we went. So luckily, we, you know, we played the gig and then just stuff started happening. I mean, like we were playing to a thousand people in Seattle, like before the year was over. Wow. Uh, and several times, like we could do several shows like that a, a year. It was really bonkers. That's um, because of uh, the things I was talking about. And, um, because we were underage, we did a lot of un- all ages things. Mm-hmm. Um, and because also like we had this kind of like almost looking like the cure or something like that on, 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 in the first album. Okay. You know, we had like spray, big spray painted hair and stuff <laughs> like that. And even though our music was the polar opposite of goth music, um, because of the look and I think because of some other there is an underlying, I don't know. It's, it's not, the music is kind of cheerful in a sense, but there's like the lyrics are a little bit down a little bit like the Smith's formula. Okay. Um, you know, and we, a lot of goth kids came to our shows Wow. and they loved it. I mean, for whatever reason, um, I think, you know, we, we were outcasts in a sense that made it. And I think that made us inspiring for other people who considered themselves outcasts. Okay. I, I, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. How did you, how did you get to the major labels at that point? You would so the first album ended up getting released on pop llama. Right. And Later then that year. Yeah. And then you end up on Geffen. How did that happen? Well, I mean, imagine completely innocently. I mean, like, you know, we just, John and I are two people who ended up through the actions of, various, you know, divorces of our parents living in Bellingham, Washington. Right. So it's not where either, it's not where any of our parents are from, but we ended up living there. And the nearest big city is Seattle. Mm -hmm. So of course, when you want to leave Bellingham, you go to Seattle. It's rudimentary. It's just an hour and a half away. And I went to school there. And of course, as soon as things started happening for us, uh, you know, we both dropped out of school and John left Bellingham and came down to Seattle, blah, blah, blah. We didn't know that 1988 Seattle would become 1989 Seattle, which is basically the most, the hottest music scene in the world. Right. You know, and that just continued to snowball. So, and we were already a proven success. I mean, just there's no other band that you can think of that was getting commercial radio airplay like that on a completely self-released album. It, it is unheard of. Yeah. Um, and so I have to say that it's a testimony. I mean, the songs are good, but I think that John's engineering um, is really, really good. So we, we had those things in our favor and that is like a no brainer for major labels. So every major label came calling Okay. Pretty much immediately. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, we're playing a record release show in Seattle. Like, we could have sold out that venue three times over. We had, like, 900 kids. Wow. Like, I mean, there's just no way that, it, like, that's an A&R person's dream. Like, they're doing all the work themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, you know, um, and we went through several uh, interviews and, um, luckily, and it's very interesting, actually Geffen came in towards the end of the whole process, which is a great move on Gary Gersh's part. Gary Gersh, of course, being really, a kind of a, you know, he's really one of the legendary A&Rs out there. Yeah. Um, and he, 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 he knew he, he was very, very savvy. <laughs> he let all the other bozos, 
<laughs> get it wrong, yeah. you know, and play it, put all their cards on the table. And then he just came in like, you know, at the end basically and said, Hey, you guys want to be in a real label? Yeah. You know, basically. And of course, you know, like Geffen was the home of XTC, um, yeah. you know, our, like our favorite band basically. Um, and we're like, yeah. And so he, you know, he said, I'm starting this boutique label within or an imprint within Geffen mm -hmm. and it's going to be you guys and Sonic Youth and John Doe. Does that sound good? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that sounds really good. <laughs> So that was that, you know, so that was like fall of 89 that we were signed to Geffen and we started working on the Dear 23, the first Geffen album in like March of 1990. So when you're writing the songs and for failure and for Dear 23 and, and mm -hmm. even beyond, is the writing a collaborative part or are you guys coming in with your own parts and just and fleshing them out together after you've already written it? It's more like that okay. all the way through, except that um, because we lived together uh, through the making of Dear 23 and everything post-failure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when failure was by the, maybe by, you know, failure came out in April of 88. We played our first gig in May. Pretty sure that by June, John and I were living in Seattle in the same house, the house where uh, where the bass player Rick and the drummer Mike Musburger, Rick Roberts and Mike Musburger had been living when I, you know, connected with them. Okay. They're living in a house a block up from where I was living. Rick and Mike said, Hey, there's a room in our house opening. You want it? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. So we, and we had our practice place in that house. Um, and then Mike moved out to live somewhere else. And Mike said, Hey, John, do you want to take my room? You know, like, and, yeah. So John moved down and he got another record store gig in Seattle and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so we were, we basically practiced and lived, uh, you know, 10 feet from each other. The, the basement of the house is where my room and John's room was. And the practice place was basically in the middle of that. Okay. Um, so yeah, we were, you know, so I, there was a lot more, flow between our songwriting at, at in that moment. So before that we were living separately in separate towns, even so our songwriting was very separate mm -hmm. during that time we lived together, you know, John couldn't finish something or I couldn't finish something, you know, we'd trade it and yeah, you finish it. You ride the bridge, you do this, blah, blah, blah. Okay. After that, you know, by the time we're making dear 23, I already lived in another house, you know? So, uh, so that was a, then things went back to being more separate. But oh. I think really when we lived together for a year or so, which is like when almost everything on dear 23 was written, that there were things were more fluid. Well, really got me into the posies and the posies was a band that I knew of, mm -hmm. but what really uh, got me interested in you guys was when the basketball diaries came out 
and the song coming right along mm. was that song is is just it's a haunting song Was that written for Frosting on the Beater, or was that written for the movie and included on Frosting on the Beater? I'm pretty sure the movie is after the, the album. Okay. Um, by by a good couple of years. I think the movie is '95. Was it okay? I, yeah, I, I don't. I couldn't remember exactly when it came out, but that's, yeah. I remember hearing that song and thinking, I got a. I had, I didn't, I didn't know it was the posies at the time. Yeah. Buying the uh, the, the soundtrack and looking at. Oh man, there we go. I gotta, yeah. I've gotta check that, and then I, you know, picked up the album, and and it was just I mean, now that song is, seems to be a little different than a lot of what you had done at the time. It was, yeah, sure. I mean, it's different from it's it's. I would say that song is unique by almost any standard. It's it's such an, you know, and and John is really, uh, I have to say that that's probably John's forte is that when he really goes out there, you know, like he, he tunes into some things that are, that are really, um, like otherworldly, Yeah, you know, like he, he, he is capable of that. Um, and, and that song is probably the most shining example of his ability to channel something like that. It's so it's, it's, you know, in some ways it's kind of a, it's almost like a minor blues, you know, like something like, um, that, you know, it is technically, it's like a one, it's a one, four, five minor. It's a one minor, two, four minor, five minor progression. Um, you know, so it's like a minor blues, uh, but it's, and it sounds, there's something very like kind of Hendrix like, about the tones and and stuff about it, Absolutely. but it doesn't sound retro, and that that's what's so interesting. It it's just from another planet, kind of. It really um, is. It, it's it's a haunting song, and it fits perfectly with the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. There's like because every because the guitars are tuned down uh, to to this open C minor tuning, it has a slowed down kind of druggy quality. Yeah. Yeah. No. Did. Did they, uh, I guess that was, was that, did that come out on electric that, that soundtrack, did they come in and say, Hey, look, we love this song. We think it'd be a perfect fit for them, for the, for the movie. How did, how did it end up on the soundtrack? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like they, they just, um, I think it got into their temp music. Um, and they liked it. They couldn't imagine anything else with the scene. It just worked too well. So then it was just a matter of working out the deal between Geffen and BMG, our publisher. Simple as that. And then a little, just uh, shortly after that, you started actually working with REM. 
Yeah. It's a couple of years after a, that, I think, right? A couple of years after that. So basically we did three albums with Geffen and the only downside of the whole thing is that we, we just didn't quite totally break through. We did really well, but we never had like a gold record, you know? And, okay. and at a certain point, I think after three albums, uh, you know, it was hard for Geffen to figure out where to go from here. And I, and at this point also, I think there were other things involved. Um, just maybe, uh, just hard to go forward. I mean, it's this right. personal things and whatnot. I, I, I think John was not in a, I, mean, I know he was not in a very good place and it just became harder and harder to work. And, and I think we just weren't really working together very well. And I think John just in general, just kind of lost the ability to really deal in a sense okay. with, with daily life um, and touring life and all those things. So uh, he was just starting to become more withdrawn and not very accessible. And it just, it was hard to, uh, hard to know what to do. So is that when you and, started writing for yourself, writing some of your solo stuff that the stuff that ended up becoming the sounds like goodbye? Yeah. I mean, it's essentially, uh, well, I, you know, the band was barely active in 1997. Yeah. Um, so I got an offer, uh, we, you know, we'd been, we'd become very popular in Spain. Um, and this label in Spain, Munster records, uh, said, Hey, we're doing this series of like 10 inch vinyls that are like, you know, solo EPs, uh, you know, would you be interested in doing one? Here's the budget, whatever it was, is like 1500 bucks or something, right. you know? And I was like, yeah, sure. sounds cool. I, you know, could happily do that. Um, and I did that, you know, I did it all at home and what I decided to do because, you know, with the band, you make a four track demo then an eight track demo and then rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and then go into the studio and everything was very prepared, okay. which is cool. I mean, it, it yielded good results. Um, but I wanted to do something more free. And so I made, uh, a rule. Um, I just bought a, um, an ADAT. So I had an eight, eight track recording possibility. Okay. Um, so the rule was that I couldn't, uh, have, I had to just press record and play basically, and then build the song from that. And there could be no going back. Oh, wow. Each track was one take. And I didn't, I, there's no rehearsing beforehand. Maybe, maybe a little bit of rehearsing beforehand, like right before, like setting up the sound and getting the levels. Okay. But I had to just improvise the whole thing. Wow. One go. Every, every overdub was one go. Oh, wow. And then, and then the, you know, I could spend a little time writing the lyrics, but they had to be, you know, one take and, oh, and that's it. So that, you know, that was just like an exercise that um, really appealed to me. Um, 
And so that's why there's, you know, instrumentals and other stuff. Because I just wouldn't, I didn't know if I was going to be able to write lyrics to everything that happened under those circumstances. Wow. Um, and so that, that, that's that. That's how that EP or LP got made. So uh, that year, 97, um, I got the call to come and join the band Lagwagon. Um, so I went down and, you know, their guitar player just quit or they'd fallen out with them, whatever, quit, fired, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and they were looking to try some new things. And so, and, and, um, their previous drummer who, you know, was their like their best friend, but it wasn't in the band anymore because unfortunately he just, his drug use had just gotten too heavy. He just okay. couldn't function. Um, and he, unfortunately he eventually died. Um, but, but he was, you know, so tight with those guys and he was a big fan. Uh, and, and, um, he, he, from, from his position on the sidelines, you know, said like, Oh, if you, if you want to, you know, you should get this guy, you should get Ken Stringfellow. Yeah, I think you will, it will introduce you to some things that will be good for your songwriting. Good for everything. Not that I wrote any of the songs on the lag wagon album, but, um, I helped, you know, arrange, I ended up co-producing the album, okay. um, as well as playing on it, et cetera. I'm doing a little engineering, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and, and it was their most successful album and we went and I did a tour, um, with okay. them too. But anyway, Posey's in theory, we're, we're still, we weren't dead yet. Um, but <laughs> getting close and basically John said, I'm, I will do one more album and, and then I'm quitting. Okay. I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, and, <laughs> and so, and we did the album on an indie label on Pop Lama, et cetera. So we did, we did tour that album. We went, we did a European tour, but then before the U S tour for that album, everybody quit except for me. Um, oh so, <laughs> so that was that. Oh my um, gosh. and of course, you know, I'd been playing music with the aforementioned Scott McCoy Mm -hmm. you know, who gave us our first gig, gave us our blah, blah, blah. Um, in addition to the young fresh fellows, Scott had done a really great solo album in 1990 that I was a huge fan of. And in 1994, he had asked me to help him make, uh, a new solo album, which okay. of course was a huge honor for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this, what had originally started as like a very acoustic, but stripped down solo album morphed into a much bigger project called the minus five, which, has had all kinds of people involved in it, yeah. but not limited to Peter Buck from REM who had just moved to Seattle. Now REM did an album. They did uh, automatic for the people. A lot of that was done in Seattle. Why? Because Seattle was Seattle. And, and of course you're going to go to Seattle and oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's the place to be. Um, so they spent, you know, some couple of months there, now, the, pretty much the only person in Seattle that Peter knew well was Scott McCoy. Okay. Why? Because Scott, you know, was a journalist. He'd interviewed R.E.M. over the years. Ah, okay. And then as Scott was a touring musician in the 80s, uh, you know, with the Young Fresh Fellows, who were really one of the only Seattle bands that, that were able to pull off a national tour pre-1985, you know, they, they crashed at Peter's house in Athens Okay. Um, and you know, wow. Scott and Peter, they're just kind of like, they, they should be brothers. I mean, they, they, they have, they have a lot of similar tastes and knowledge, range of knowledge. Uh, and so it was natural that when, uh, Peter was spending a lot of time in Seattle, 
that he'd look up Scott and they would hang out. And then, no, okay, so here's how incestuous it all is. So Scott <laughs> was the booker for a music venue in Seattle at this time. And the Posies were the first band to ever play at this music venue. Okay. Like in, in when it opened in 1991, they wanted to open with like a big deal Seattle band. Um, and so we were that band. We, we Let's put it this way. We couldn't even play under our own name because this, wow. you know, 300 capacity club was, would have, it would have been mayhem if we played a venue oh, wow. that small, but you know, we were the first band to ever play there. That's awesome. So, uh, so, and that club was basically like my HQ. Like I never had to buy a drink, never <laughs> had to pay for a show. I just go there every night, hang out and, you know, basically live like rock and roll royalty. Right. <laughs> and so of course, you know, that was the place for Peter to hang out with Scott and Peter fell in love with Stephanie, the owner of the club. Okay. Right. right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. now he lives in Seattle. Okay. Right. Um, Scott ends up playing with REM. Okay. Um, now I'd already been playing in the minus five and Peter had joined the project um, at this time. And I know that now that they had considered asking me, to join R.E.M. for the Monster Tour, um, wow. but didn't because they had a policy. They didn't want to offer that temptation to someone in a band that was active. Oh, wow. Okay. Be because you'd quit your band to join R.E.M. Yeah. And they didn't want to do that to a band. You know, there's, there's no way I could have said no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And yeah. that would have, you know, there, there's no way that my band, I mean, that would be like a two year commitment, blah, blah, blah. Now. So I never knew about this, but you know, like that's, wow. that, that's what I've been told. But anyway, come 1998, posies are right. announced, announcing our farewell, farewell shows, etc. Um, so, uh, you know, off I go and join REM. So, wow. You know, I think in certain ways, I think John's plan to sabotage things failed spectacularly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if it was an actual plan. I think he was just very miserable and didn't know what would make him happy. And I think he made some choices that I don't think, well, I mean, who knows what to say. They didn't, I think we should have kept going and, and done a lot of things differently, but had that happened, I never would have joined R.E.M. and never would have played with Neil Young and blah, 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 blah. So fuck it. It was the right thing to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and, it worked out well for it, you. It worked out well for me. Um, and it, and in a way it worked out well for everybody because it brought my musicianship up and my connections and profile up to where I could, you know, I can come back and serve this band like a manager and a producer and a player with a whole range of experience. You know, I think I bring much more to the picture now uh, than I did pre hiatus. Right. Right. Okay. And if that hiatus hadn't happened, you know, you have the, the posies have come back together and released other albums. And without that happening, you, you know, there may have been some permanent damage to their relationship. So it's quite possible. It, it's yeah. It, it may have been the best thing. It sounds like it was definitely the best thing for everybody all around at that at that time. Yeah, and, and anyway, like there's a lot of coulda, shoulda, woulda in life, mm -hmm. but you know, I'm I'm definitely grateful for how. I mean, if that's 
the worst thing that could happen is that my band comes to an end and we, you know, John wanted to get out of our record deal. So we got out of the record deal and that, you know, there's like, um, I've, I, I'm not sure sometimes like there's a um, emotional component to John that might have, and especially in those days, I think might've not been about clearly thinking through decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to, tell him many times i said you know that between the next album advance and the next publishing advance there was like one million dollars coming our way that no no we have to get out of this now blah 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 and uh he's like yeah that was probably pretty stupid actually (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah probably you two sound like brothers Mm. you sound like 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 me and my brother sometimes yeah well (laughs) you know like i I have to say that um, you're probably right, and but I have to say that we have uh, we have forgiven a lot. It's a weird thing, like we forgive, but like, it, I, it's not like forgotten. Mm-hmm. Like I'll always be like about that million dollars. Yeah, remember that time you fucked me out of a million bucks? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, we're, we're still here, still working together, um, and I think uh, we appreciate each other. You know, we would have been easy to take Well, we did take each other for granted, you know, spending 10 years on the road, basically, you know, breathing each other's carbon dioxide, you know, in vans and whatnot. Uh, Of course, we took each other for granted at the time. And I don't know, I'm just, you know, from a psychological point of view, just for me personally, you know, the only thing I ever did as an adult was the posies, you know, from the time I was 19 Wow, that's right. Or even 18, really, because the band started in, you know, even before. And I just, if I hadn't had a chance to go out and sh- and, and prove to myself what I'm capable of, um, I don't think I ever would have been a very secure person. So now I'm capable of a lot of things, and I've really worked on it, you know, like really spent, you know, I had to figure out what to do post-posies even with REM involved. Right. Um, because it's not my band. You know, right, yeah, exactly. Just an invited for, for who knows how long. I didn't know if it was going to be like a one tour or whatever, but ended up being a really nice relationship for, for several years. But even still, I mean, you know, I had to think about building a, a life. Right. Um, Cause you, you're not and, writing, like you said, with a band, it's not your band and you still are a creative person. You want to make your own art, your own work. Well, that's exactly also true. And the solo album that I did for Munster, that first one that sounds like goodbye. Um, also, you know, it got really good reviews, even by reviewers who were skeptical about the posies because in a way we're too slick in a sense. Oh, wow, okay. Um, they, they, you know, certain reviewers really appreciated the rawness of that album and, and, and saw that I was, you know, that maybe I was in it for the right reasons where maybe they weren't, you know, because, with the posies, we had it so easy. We just came out of nowhere. People have always been skeptical about us because of that reason that, you know, they've imagined there was some other kind of, you know, I don't know, like a Spengali behind us or something or somebody, a puppet master, whatever, yeah. that we were like some kind of boy band or something <laughs> because we were teenagers and cute enough, you know, whatever. But, you know, we had this insane amount of success, you know, like it was controversial in Seattle 
how big our success was in 1989 uh, because, you know, nobody had had big hit records yet in 1989. Right, yeah. And, and so that, that was a couple years or at least a year away. So right now we're just talking about bands that were a local phenomenon breaking into a national phenomenon like Soundgarden and Mother Love Bone yeah. and Mudhoney uh, and Nirvana, et cetera, et cetera. Chains, yeah. yeah, so that's all bubbling up, but they just seemed more credible and we didn't seem credible because things worked so well for us that people thought there must be, they must, it, it can't be natural. Well, and, but in and, and fact, sound it was, was totally, different. it was, and, and yeah, and the sound was not like, um, it wasn't out of change. It, it wasn't about emotional darkness. Yeah. And that always has carries a little bit of credibility. Like you've lived it, you know, yeah. in a sense. And, uh, and, and the darkness that we had was a little encoded into something different. It was maybe a little more subtle. I, yeah, um, for sure. But, uh, let's, shall we say that, that maybe we just didn't look like, well, we, and we weren't from Seattle, like all those bands also, one thing to remember is they're all, um, at least two or three years older than we are. And they all grew up in Seattle, except for Nirvana. Yeah. Um, and they all hang out in the same bars and they all, you know, like they all knew each other they and open for we each were, other. And we, we came from nowhere and suddenly we're like playing, you know, theaters and it just was like, what? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. It looked <laughs> fake, but it wasn't. Okay. Okay. And, and your solo stuff has been really a, a fascinating amount of stuff i mean the, the, the you shift genres i mean you've, you've done mm. some poppy stuff you've done some darker stuff but you've also done a, like a you did an entire country album with holly muñoz mm -hmm. that's that was really cool I and mean, i was looking at that and um willie nelson's daughter thought the album was and there's a connection with one of willie nelson's albums for that album and amy nelson right thought the album was amazing and thank you on behalf of the entire family. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. that's pretty wild. Yeah. What was, how did that album get started? Cause that, that is for me, you know, knowing what I, what I know about the posies and listening mm -hmm. to your solo stuff, that album kind of came out of left field. How did you get the idea? To some to degree. Do uh, I mean, there, there is like elements uh, of, country music folded into albums that came before. Oh yeah. Okay. Like touched. Uh, yeah. You have that beautiful pedal steel on, on uh, the opening track of touched. So that, right. That's true. And then there's a little more of that on, on Danzig in the moonlight, mm -hmm. which is the solo album that came out before the country record. And so in fact, so on that album, Danzig in the moonlight, the solo album I put out in 2012, um, there's a song called doesn't it remind you of something that is, like a back and forth duet. Yes, I wanted and to ask you about this. Spent in a hole in the wall. They taught me how life it just don't miss me that bad. I still cry when I listen to church bells. They have that effect. I thought that ringing might drive me insane. That one too. I cast your last breath. So uh, on the CD and the streaming version of the album, it's Charity Rose Thielen from The Head and the Heart mm -hmm. singing with me. Yeah, yeah. On the LP and in the video, it's Margaret Cho. Okay, okay, yeah. I, I'm familiar with the Margaret Cho. I've been watching the videos. and how, Okay, so tell me a little bit about how that all happened. How, why, why are there two different versions? 
Um, just because, I mean, because I could, you know, oh, like okay. I actually wanted to even do a few more versions for different markets, but oh, just cool. didn't quite get it together. But, um, you know, uh, both charity and Margaret expressed interest in doing it at about the same time. And so I said, well, why not? You know, let's, let's get them both in there and then figure out what to do with it. You know, That's I thought that'd awesome. be cool to have a couple different versions. Margaret is, uh, has been a Posies fan for a really long time. So, you know, when failure came out and we'd been this Northwest phenomenon on the radio, when failure came out on pop llama and it got serviced to national radio, like blew up on a couple stations. Um, and one of those stations is live one Oh five, which is, it was a big commercial station in the San Francisco. Okay. Uh, 91 X in San Diego was a big station for us. Uh, we got played it on a big station in Minneapolis. So, the bridge between us and the major label, you know, also was that, that, that our record, our indie record totally worked on radio, but, and we had a lot of fans. I mean, we, we, for failure, we only toured the West coast. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we, we went down twice, um, and did the Bay area and LA and whatnot, okay. um, on a couple different jaunts. Um, but things were happening so fast at that point. Both of the, both of those tours were in 1989. Um, cause you know, uh, well, yeah. Anyway, uh, and then we were we were signed by the, the the second one, and then there was time to make the record, and we were just had momentum, momentum. Everything was like snowballing really fast. Okay, but you know, so San Francisco was like a big thing for us, and we did really well uh, there, and it was an early home for us. Uh, and and you know, and Margaret's from there, so you know, she's about the right age to be connecting to that music at that time. Okay. And you have released an album, uh, an EP of covers, including a cover of one of an artist that I've really grown to love over the past few years, Judy Sill. You oh, yeah. Crayon Angel. one of her songs because if i was going to cover her I, it's hard for me to choose and, and yeah she, but some of the songs are way way more complicated quarterly oh i can imagine yeah like, that, like the donor. that one made sense because it's kind of easy i mean it's a beautiful song and i love it yeah. and it, but it's, it's also possible for me to play it you know yeah <laughs> that's a good choice i guess that makes sense it's now there is there plans for a uh volume two of sellout cover sessions no no, oh man, no. <laughs> man! I saw volume one and I got kind of excited. <laughs> right, it's going to keep going. Yeah. Well, volume one of one. So when you're writing now, so the, the Posies have come back and released a few albums since the '98 uh, breakup. Yeah. When you're writing a song, do you know ahead of time when you're writing if it's going to be something you're going to keep for yourself or if it's going to be something for the, the Posies? Um, at this point, it's a question of timing. Um, so that it could go either way. I mean, in, I've kind of, uh, the closest parallel I can, <laughs> I can bring to how I operate now is there was Genesis, right? Right. And then there's Phil Collins. Yep. 
And by the end of the Genesis trajectory, it's basically Phil Collins. Yeah. Right. Like the, 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 the singles that come out of the Genesis, uh, Genesis at the end are basically indistinguishable from Phil Collins solo exactly. singles. Exactly. Like he found a thing and a thing that worked for him and that people loved and connected to. Um, and I'm not saying I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking back on Phil Collins level hits, but I, I bring a certain voice and I, I think it's something that it's, uh, I don't really separate myself from my songwriting to the point where I, when I do what I do naturally, it's, gonna come through and that's my voice so i apply that voice now to the solo thing and to the posies thing maybe maybe well no actually i think on this next record that we're working on now i think it even goes closer because there's some elements of americana in the stuff that i've written for the new record oh cool um and some of the more piano based stuff that's pretty obvious on my solo records is fit in there. Like I kind of basically turned the boat of the posies to a little bit more like what I do solo. And there's more fluidity between those two worlds because I'm the same guy, you know, I'm basically presenting the same values. Yeah. Essentially, um, in either situation, which is a kind of, you know, emotional accessibility and sensitivity that, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, the only thing I can say about the new Posies record is that I think I've taken my songwriting one iteration more simple. Um, okay. Which is because um, I've written so many complicated, obscure things. It was interesting me to me this time around to say like, what if I just said what I wanted to say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if I just, what if I just told you what I was feeling? Yeah. You know, like, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> um, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not as dumbed down as you think. In fact, it's not dumbed down at all. It, it, and I still have poetry in there that, that is a little obscure, but there are a couple tunes that just kind of say what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And I think that's cool. I think that is like an intelligent, place to go. I mean, at some point, every great artist that we all love and admire is because they spoke to us directly. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan has all kinds of crazy shit that he's written. Yeah. And then he's got Lay Lady Lay. I mean, he's capable of both, yeah. you know, I mean, and he's capable of just saying something sincere yeah. And, and it works, you know, like it, it's a matter. I mean, if I was only hiding behind clever wordplay for me, that seems less mature. It seems less real. Like, okay, stop hiding. Maybe. Right. Yeah. So you're being a little more, more open and honest with, with the songwriting then. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, that's how it feels, you know? Now you're on tour playing touched. Are you, are you playing the entire album? Yeah. Oh wow, okay. That's that that is the that is the jam. That is awesome. Nobody wants to hear the ravings of a bad drunk. They're afraid he'd speak their minds and say that you find yourself. Are you filling it out with other tracks 
from uh, your solo or, or do you add any Posies songs to the set list? Well, I mean, the, the basic format, um, because just playing touched and telling a few stories about it takes about an hour. Right. Um, you know, it's a 40 minute album. And if I go off on any tangents at all, speaking wise, and plus, you know, whatever tuning and whatever, somehow it ends up being almost an hour to play that record. And so from that point, I usually switch over and do songs, um, from the country record. Um, and I, you know, bring a local singer in to, to do those. Um, except for example, on this Appalachian run that I'm doing is with, uh, Karen Allen, Mm -hmm. who is, uh, not the person from the Indiana Jones movie. Uh, (laughs) she's another person, uh, who is a really great songwriter. She's from Charleston and, uh, I produced her latest album. Um, and in fact, this tour with her, that kind of came out of the impetus to do another record, um, and so we're doing some recording. We have a few days in the middle of the tour where we're, we're, we're working on a new record oh, cool. for her, but also doing shows. So she's with me for a few shows that, that she helped put together. And so she'll do those songs. And because on the dancing in the moonlight album, my last solo record, there's also a couple tunes that have female backing vocals. I usually do those. Dances round every drain Confident in its returning Okay. Now, you know, now we're what? We're, we're, those are, we're talking about five songs there. So we're at like 16 songs, which is getting close to the two hour mark. So after I do like, you know, random assortment of a couple of big star posies, solo, other solo tunes. I mean, it quickly gets up to be about a two hour show. Oh, wow. That's um, awesome. Well, I mean, it takes, it doesn't get there quickly. It takes two hours. <laughs> <right away. laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it adds up. Okay. Okay. And is the show, is the set list, does it vary much from night to night or is, is it pretty similar? Not really because I mean, with those five duets and the 11 songs untouched, I mean, that is pretty much the night. And then after that, you know, I mean, I, I usually these days I've been playing one of the new Posey songs that works really well in a solo way. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, there's a little bit of variance towards the end. Um, I've got a, some some slots to fill, you know, right. but, and, you know, maybe somebody w- might shout out that they want to hear something or whatever. But I have some go to's, you know, that that um, seem to work pretty well. Well, I know. But, it's yeah, I mean, like out. 16 of the songs are kind of set. Okay. Okay. Well, when you come to Winchester, I know what songs I'm going to be shouting out. So yeah, please. (laughs) I'll I'll give you a hint. One is "Let Me Do," and the other is "Superwise." Oh well, "Superwise" is one of the songs with female backing vocals. Awesome. So that's easy. That's good. And uh, I'll think of some others that I can throw out there. But uh, I saw, and I'll I'll wrap this up real quick because I know I've I've kept you for quite a while this evening. But I saw that there was a film that you'd been working on a few years ago. Yeah, uh, Ken. Now, can you tell me a little bit about that? How that started? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I've known this director for a number of years, um, and she is quite interested in parental stories. 
Okay. And how those stories, you know, how a lot of what we're looking for in life is stuff that maybe we were trying to get from our parents and things like this. Okay. I think she had, you know, I mean, personally speaking, hopefully I'm not putting too much of her info in line here, but I think she had a, you know, kind of troublesome relation with her parents at times. And, and I think that, that, that that's kind of a central point in her work. Um, she did another, another film that's about, um, a guy trying to find the dad he never met, etc. Okay. Now what makes her films interesting is that there are factual elements in her films uh, that mix with that be, that form the basis of a fictional story. In other words, the okay. film is fact and fiction. Like this film where the guy is looking for his real dad or the the dad he never met. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true that this actor had never met his father, and his father was, uh, you know, what they call a guest worker from Italy who had spent a short time in Germany and then left and, and left behind a boy. Okay. And, and that's all real. So, but, but then they made the, but the, but the movie is not a documentary. It's just, uh, but they go on this road trip to kind of maybe find some information about him. Okay. So it, it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's hard to describe because once again, it doesn't really fit into the normal way that it's not, it's not a documentary and it's not a, purely fictional film. It's kind of like a, a, his, a fictional exploration of the real world. Okay. Okay. Fictionalized, you know, I mean, like you see this on crime shows where they recreate the thing, but that's another thing altogether. Right. So it's not as fictional uh, as like Abraham Lincoln, vampire slayer. Not quite. Yeah. <laughs> okay. N- nor, it, nor is it as factual. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we basically made this film basically. And, and it's all around when we were conceiving the film, it's before I met my biological parents. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask but you about it, that. But during the conception of the film, by the time we were getting around and making this film, I met my biological parents and I wasn't ever sure it was going to work out. Um, okay. that I was, you know, like I had discovered who my biological mother was, um, and she had some reservations about starting a relationship. She really wasn't sure if that was something that she could emotionally deal with. Right. I think basically, I mean, uh, and she wasn't really sure about opening that whole box. Um, but eventually she had a change of heart. Um, and so we connected, um, and I can, you know, through her, I was able to figure out who, my biological father was, and I connected with him as well. Um, so all that happened and we were still on board to make this movie. So Uh. it got really interesting. So basically the first real amount of time other than like a brief dinner, basically that I'd spent with either of these parents was making this movie with them. Wow. Where part of the thing is I, I reconnect to them. And, and, and so we have these conversations that, actually are factual, but we do some other things too that, you know, it's like we, we basically improvise acting scenes together. Okay. But a lot of the truth comes into it. So it's a really, I don't know if anybody else has made a movie like this. (laughs) Um, the only other thing I can say, I mean, there's this film called Daniel in the mountain. I don't think I'm familiar with what it's called. There was a guy, um, who, um, he was, you know, when he basically 
was in Africa and he did a lot of risky things and he ended up freezing to death because he went, he went on this solo hike on a mountain and he didn't really take very good preparation or precaution and, and he got lost and he, he ended up dying on this mountain. Oh, wow. And they made a movie about it with recreating this whole trip basically with an actor playing him and an actress playing the girlfriend that joined him for some of the trip and then took off. Okay. But everybody else that they encounter in the recreation of the trip were the actual people that the actual guy encountered Wow. on the trip. So they're non-actors and they reprise their roles in his life. Oh my God. Um, a really cool idea. So, I mean, in a way that's the closest thing I can tell you about this film is that the actors in the film are generally people from my real life. Wow. But there's also an actress involved playing somebody who never existed in my real life. <laughs> okay. Is this a, is it available? No, it's not finished yet. Not finished. I mean, the film okay. is shot, but yeah. it, it's not edited. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's in the process of being edited. So hopefully one of these days it'll <laughs> emerge. Well, it sounds fantastic. My mom was adopted and uh-huh. years it, years later, she she never knew until I was almost a teenager. I would say, and she mm-hmm. and she found out, and uh, she reconnected with her birth mother. But her birth mother would never tell her who her birth father was. Huh. And it's, in fact, it's kind of funny because my mom and my aunt were are both adopted. They had the same mothers but different fathers, and they were adopted by the same family. So right. it's really so my family's. It's really interesting, but they neither of them know who their father is, uh, huh. but they both reconnected with their mother. So and, and I, I actually got a chance to meet her a couple of times. So, mm. so it was really, really interesting. That's when I listened to a, an interview with you saying that you, you were adopted. I'm like, OK. And then the, the movie, I'm like, this is this is fantastic. I've, I, I definitely need to know more about this because I definitely would love to watch this. So I will be definitely yeah, keeping I think it's in- a really, I think, I mean, I have no idea what it'll really look like because basically we, we shot like easily a hundred hours wow. of improvised footage scenes of me acting with either one of these biological parents right. and the actress who plays a kind of almost like a near miss love affair we don't quite make it to love affair status. There's interest, but we just, you know, I've got the, the me that I am in the film that the, you know, the character that I am, mm-hmm. uh, is a, is like an alternate universe. Me, you know, someone who was never as successful and okay. never as lucky. Um, and never, you know, never, you know, someone who's got more, more doubts and less has had less reward in a sense. So he's a little, he's much less fulfilled, wow, okay. much more lost. Um, that's the point we're starting from. And just, you know, basically in the, the film is starting with the shit is not working. Yeah. You know, basically <laughs> you know, I'm driving this old piece of shit car and I'm playing to nobody. Oh, and, wow. you know, just, I'm not, you know, my, it's not working out with my girlfriend and everything's just kind of going to shit. And in a way meeting this girl, you know, who appears at one of my shows is like, a sign that things are not working also because I can't, I don't really connect with her. I kind of blow it in a sense. I'm oh, too, I'm not okay. too unstable in a sense. And I suppose that, that what happens is 
um, not that we shot in this order, but I'm just picturing what could work is that mm-hmm. is that, and I don't really know what the film will be because <laughs> I just did the thing, right. but that, you know, I re I reconnect with my parent my birth parents and start to get a little more grounding. And I reconnect with my son, um, who I, you know, I have a son from who was born who, when I was a teenager. Okay. I'm the product of teenage parents and I was a teenage parent. Wow. Um, and my son wasn't given up for adoption. I mean, he, he, he just stayed with his mom, but I mean, so we've always had a relationship. Um, but you know, it's, it's like, it's as, I think in the film, it would be as if we connected from further out, but, okay, yeah. um, this kind of thing. So all of that kind of brings me back to earth. I don't even know if I end up fulfilled or not by uh, the yeah. end, but, but in theory, the trajectory should be, uh, you know, like this logarithmic curve, right. but I don't know. <laughs> so last thing before I let you go, it, what is the, uh, the status on the, a new Posey's album? Yeah. Well, so I'm here, uh, in LA, uh, this week to work on that record. Basically, I'm hoping that this week basically finishes it. Awesome. Um, I think we're pretty close and I think if we work hard this week, we could finish it. We have our mixer set aside for March. Okay. Um, so he's available and we've all agreed that beginning of March, which is really not far away. Um, and once this week is done here, I mean, I've only got a couple days that I can do anything else. So I pretty much have to finish all my shit this week. (laughs) Um, you got a tour to do. Yeah, so I got to get it done. Is there a possible window of release, like a late end of the year, early next year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's about as specific as that, because until I've shopped it, until I've talked to, you know, all the labels I want to talk to with something that I can play them, Mm -hmm. it's pretty much impossible to say. I mean, I, I think, you know, if the record is done in March, it's not impossible for us to get it out this year. Okay. It just sort of depends on the release schedule of the label we end up working with, but right. it's not, it's not impossible. Um, and, uh, but I think like booking a really good solid tour for this year is a little bit of a stretch. So I would think that we'd really start working like hard in 2021. Okay. But you never know. We might do some shit. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> well, I want to, you know, we've always, uh, kind of been, a little too cavalier or running late, or there's always something with our records in recent years, because, you know, we're, we're not on the normal schedule that bands are on, you know, we're like on again, off again, you know, we do other projects and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, exactly. there's been a lot covers. of less than ideal circumstances. And I really am holding on. We have no reason to rush the release of this album. Right. And we have no reason to force ourselves into booking a tour prematurely. Uh, and I'm going to keep it that way. I don't care if it's another year before this record comes out. I really don't right. you know, because it'll still be relevant. Um, and I would much rather have a good setup and do everything, you know, make sure the cover looks good. We've got videos in place and all the shit so that it all fires the way it should be. And so that's kind of where, where things are at. Oh, well, that's fantastic. And thank you so much for spending so much time with me, man. I really do appreciate everything tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, I'm glad I had the, the window to do it.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 